Support for today's episode comes from Squarespace, Fracture, and Cards Against Humanity. So that's the App Store. We think there's never been anything like it to get apps from developers to users. Think about how you're listening to me right now. I'm going to bet that you're listening to this show on an iPhone or some other rectangular piece of glass. I may be wrong at this exact moment in time, but I bet that you do listen to shows on your trusted pocket computer. But how would you have listened to podcasts before? Think back to 2006. Likely at this time, you would have had to have used an iPod or maybe you're sitting at your desk. Either way, listening to this podcast is more of a process. You download a show, sync it to your iPod, and hope that it's there when you have time to hear it. Meanwhile, your pockets are getting full between your cell phone, your iPod, and just about everything else. Everyone saw this as a problem. You have two devices, and rumors were abound that Apple was about to release a phone that would combine those into one. Before 2007, we wanted a device that solved this problem, so we assumed the iPhone would be an iPod and a phone. And to that extent, that is what happened. There were many mock-up designs that showed people were thinking about just that, a phone that used a clickwheel interface just like the iPod. That was what we could easily foresee. That was the simple picture that we could paint in our minds. But on January the 9th, 2007, in a packed Moscone Center in San Francisco, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone to the world. His presentation was hinged on three pillars. Take a listen to this clip of Steve and pay attention to how the crowd responds to each one. Today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. For what we expected it to be, a phone and an iPod, there were cheers, and we got exactly what we were looking for. But that unexpected third pillar, the internet communicator, was greeted by silence and confusion. What on earth is an internet communicator? I remember at the time reading the live blogs and being somewhat confused. I didn't know what an internet communicator actually was. Remember, this is 2007. Many people were using Palm Pilots or Blackberries to get real work done and had never seen a useful, responsive touchscreen before. At the time, the king of cell phones was the Motorola Razr. If you were around right then, this is the design that you are going to know because it was that popular. You wanted the Razr because it was so cutting edge, because it was so thin. It was only 13.9 millimeters thick and this size gave it its Razr name. Today, eight years later, the iPhone 6 is half the thickness at 6.9 millimeters. The thickness is just another point on Apple's checklist, one that some people even complain about. It's interesting to see how far we've come.
The state-of-the-art Motorola Razr was equipped with a 2.2-inch color display, a full physical number pad, and a web browser that gave you a very constrained look at the internet. The world before the iPhone was very, very different. The Razr was released in July of 2004, and by July of 2006, two years later and six months before the iPhone was unveiled, 50 million Razrs had been sold. So if we go back to Steve's presentation, maybe this gives a little more context as to why the concept of an internet communicator created a gap in people's minds. What could we do with this? At the time, we could simply not imagine how much we would come to depend on this third pillar. We had no idea what it meant to have the internet in our pockets every single day, connected to everything. Today, eight years later, the iPhone's internet communicator is enabling a whole new set of ways to interact with the world, even in ways that replace the iPhone's first two pillars, a phone and an iPod. Today we FaceTime, we listen to Spotify, we use apps. These apps are now the windows we look through out onto the expansive internet superhighway that our phones are connected to. It's truly the apps that have changed everything. From Relay FM, this is Inquisitive, Behind the App. I'm Mike Hurley. I've been interviewing people every single week for five years, and one of the things I have found most interesting is the evolution of the App Store and the people that surround it. Over the time that I've been recording these shows, I've spoken to dozens of developers and I have found their stories fascinating. In this special series of Inquisitive, we're going to take a deeper look into the App Store and what it's like to be an iOS developer today. You're going to hear interviews with lots of really talented people, as well as some background from me, as we try to understand how people were thinking and working eight years ago, and how things have changed today. On January 9th, 2007, when Steve Jobs took to the stage to unveil the iPhone, we had no idea what we were really going to see. Many people had opinions, but we all had reactions. I was, yeah, blown away. That was Guy English. Guy currently works on a Mac app called Napkin. At the time the iPhone was unveiled, he was at a Mac development company known as Rogue Amoeba after having worked in the video game industry. It really blown away. Um, But I didn't fully understand just how... And, you know, I I don't want to be over the top here, but it, you know, how world-changing this device was um, until I saw it in person in San Francisco at the Apple Store there. I played with it in person, and you could not use them yet in Canada. They weren't available yet. And I bought one. (laughs) And I bought bought it home, and um, I could do nothing with it except call 911 which I was sorely tempted to do, but never actually did. Um, I, for like a week and a half, all I did is play with the slider, the emergency call slider, uh, and be in love with this little device. This whole series of Inquisitive is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. Instead of reading an ad, they have interviewed a bunch of independent game designers about what it's like to work on iOS games. This week, they talked to Mike Boxleiter from Mike and Greg Games. 
What's it like going through cert for a game with Apple? It's it's just fear um, because you, you send it to them and you have absolutely no feedback on whether or not it's going good or bad. I actually, when we submitted Gasketball uh, two years ago, we put out our release date because you can set your release date. Um, that was like way far in advance. We had like a month of lead time or three weeks and it took them the entire three weeks to review it and I was freaking out so hard. I was staying with my parents at the time and we went to go karaoke and I was freaking out so bad I had a panic attack and I had to walk home the three miles to get home just to calm down the entire time. I was, I was just so out of it. My parents called me like saying, where the hell did you go? I thought you just went to the bathroom. And I was like in the middle of town, just walking and walking, just trying to calm down. Our next game is called Touch Tone. Uh, it's about uh, phone hacking, NSA type stuff. It's a simple puzzle game with like a hacking story to it. Um, and it's hopefully gonna come out uh, early March, but uh, we'll see if we get reviewed on time. The iPhone was a revolution. People were gasping when Steve first demoed some of the functions of the device. They even had one in a glass cylinder atop a podium on the Macworld Expo show floor after the announcement that they showed for the rest of the week. All week, people fought each other just to stand in front of the thing to try and take a look at it. They couldn't touch it. They couldn't use it. They just wanted to see it. But not everyone was completely blindsided. I asked Marco Arment whether he thought the iPhone would be a future development platform for him. Not at all. No. I mean, when it, when it first came out, I said, eh, it's a little too expensive. It's only available on AT&T. I don't, I, I, it's not worth it. And I didn't even get one until a couple months later when, when David actually got one for me. Marco is referring to David Karp, the founder of Tumblr. Uh, as a, kind of like a, a bonus and a gift because he knew I should have one, <laughs> even, <laughs> even if I didn't. <laughs> You might be more familiar with Marco Arment as the man behind some hugely popular apps instead of his time as CTO and employee number two of Tumblr. Instapaper, the magazine, Overcast. Marco has created all of these fantastic applications and has a strong career now as an independent app developer. I've learned a lot from David and from the time between then and now. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, yeah, I didn't get one until, until you know, it came out in late June, I believe it was, like June 29th, something like that. I got one that October. In 2007, Jason Snell, who currently writes at SixColors.com, was the editor-in-chief of Macworld magazine. It was mind-blowing. I, that, that is really what I could say about it. There, there's that moment where he talks about, Jobs talks about the, the three different devices. And, you know, that was, as somebody who'd been watching Apple, that was fairly easy to pick up that this is, he's going, you know, this is a bit. He's going somewhere with this. Um but it was that was a masterful presentation, and everybody there, uh, I think, knew it that this was a that this was something very different, and that Jobs himself was so pleased with it that he was going kind of above and beyond what he was what he was used to. Apple's keynotes today are pretty much private events on their schedule and on their terms. WWDC is the only event where people of the public now get to see an Apple presentation, but they are still a specific crowd. They're developers. But this wasn't the case when the iPhone was released. It was released at a public event at the Macworld Expo. And the Macworld's keynote crowd is not your usual 
uh, keynote crowd because there were actually regular people in the audience, which uh, now that Apple controls all of its own media events itself, that doesn't happen. You Even at the developer conference, it's paid developers. Apple developers are there. Whereas theoretically, a Macworld Expo keynote, you could be a member of the general public and pay to get a badge and wait in line and see Steve Jobs. Remember, the iPhone was announced six months before it went on sale, and a few weeks before the iPhone was released, Apple held their worldwide developer conference known as WWDC from June 11th to the 15th of 2007. Back then, a lot of people were expecting Apple to announce a way that they would be able to develop their own apps for the iPhone. However, what Apple ended up announcing at this event was the ability to create web apps for the iPhone. So these were not apps that you could download directly to the device. They were web pages that you could visit in the Safari browser on the iPhone. These were formatted to look like a native app. You could save shortcuts to your home screen, and Apple would set up the iPhone in such a way that the pages in Safari would be able to hook into phone functions like sending emails and making calls. But of course, they were completely dependent on having an internet connection, and were nothing like the real apps that we know today. Steve Jobs famously referred to this as the sweet solution for developers, but many disagreed. What were you expecting? (laughs) Something better than a sweet solution. Um, <laughs> what did that feel like when when Steve stood on stage and said you can build web apps? Felt like a letdown. I don't know if I was totally surprised that they didn't announce an SDK. What I was totally surprised about was that they uh, tried to fob off um, a WebKit based solution. So I, I don't know, disappointed. I, I thought maybe I'm going to have to learn a lot more about this. Webby web JavaScript stuff. That didn't intimidate me. Um, but I thought that some of the potential of the device had been lost when they announced that. It was a stall. I would say it was a stalling technique by by Steve Jobs and his team. And, and there are, stories have come out since that they they really debated this on the inside. And, you know, I who knows what the truth is, but my guess is they all knew that they would get there eventually or that they would probably get there eventually, but they they just decided for whatever reason and probably because it was just too early that they they were not willing to talk about software development on the device. And then you've got a whole developer conference and everybody wants to know everything they possibly can about the iPhone. What do you say? Well, it's got a great browser so you could write web apps. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I actually think it would have gone over well or, or better if they had if they had phrased it like that if they had said look we know you all want to develop software for the for this and we are working to ship it and then we will start thinking about a way for you to develop software but right now we're not going to let you so here's the cool thing we've got this great browser use that but my memory of that event and maybe that's faulty my memory of that event is that that's not what they did it was it was a hard sell it was Web apps are great. This is the answer. Just do this. You don't even need software. Yeah, software developers really want to hear that. And I think that was I think that was um a mistake. I think that was that was the wrong tone to take with the developers. And uh, you know, it, it would have gone down a lot easier if they had been a little more open, even though that's not really um, Apple's nature or Steve Jobs' nature. Why do you think Apple went with web apps first? And do you think that in like Apple's ideal world they would have remained as web apps forever? 
it probably depends who you ask at Apple. Uh, I know certainly in Steve Jobs' ideal world, I think that would have been true. Um, but, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't always right. And, and even though he would have preferred that it stay web apps only because, you know, he wanted Apple to, to control the whole experience on the phone, this is one of those areas where even, even he was, pro- was almost certainly better off being overridden by the other people at Apple in the market, kind of pushing him in the other direction. Because the iPhone would never have gotten as big as it is today if they didn't do that. This show is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code QUESTION at checkout. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. If you're a person that wants to put something on the internet, or you're a person that already puts things on the internet, you should be checking out Squarespace if you haven't already. They give you absolutely all of the tools that you need to make a really powerful professional website. We could be talking about a blog, but maybe a portfolio, or a store. They have really clean, stunning templates, and they've added even more with Squarespace 7 that look good on every single device as they all feature responsive web design. They have stuff like their cover page. Cover pages are a really cool feature that allow you to create single-page websites with all of the power of a full Squarespace site. They've partnered with Getty Images to provide you with a great deal on fantastic photography at just $10 an image. Squarespace have 24-7 customer support with live chat and email. Uh, They have their commerce platform, which allows anyone to add a store to their Squarespace site. I love Squarespace. I've used them for years, and I recommend them to anyone that is looking at starting a website. So you can sign up for a free trial with no credit card required and start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code QUESTION to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Inquisitive. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month, and you'll get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Thanks so much to Squarespace for the support of this show and Relay FM. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. So it was made clear that at least for the time being, there would be no third-party apps. Apple gave you a small selection of pre-installed apps. Anything else that you wanted, you had to view in Safari. Apple's built-in web browser. This obviously led to some frustration. Understandably, there were people who wanted to develop their own native apps for the platform, and this only intensified after people were able to buy the phone for themselves and play with it. Some people were so desperate to make their own apps for the iPhone, they used complicated software and techniques to unlock their phones, enabling the ability to install custom jailbroken apps and in some cases, start developing them for the platform themselves. Later that year, I believe, I, we we were in Chicago for C4. C4 was an independent Mac development conference held in Chicago, Illinois. And I, I remember standing in a circle with, um, I think it was Ben Simmons, uh, Craig Hockenberry was there, and uh, Lucas Newman. And Lucas was showing off his uh, his Lights Out demo, in which he'd, he'd, he'd hacked the phone and he'd got the, the tool chain working, and he was using... Um, uh, he, he's basically writing software before the SDK came out. Uh, Craig similarly had been doing the same thing. He'd been uh, working on uh, Twitterific at the time, um, and I did a little bit. I, I, I 
hacked my phone. I got like a little bit of it going, but I didn't really get into writing any software because I had that was working a lot of the time. So I didn't really kind of regret it, <laughs> to tell you the truth. As soon as I'd, I'd saw Lucas doing his thing, I was like, oh, yeah, man, I totally want to do that. Yeah, just on the roof of this hotel in, in Chicago, and I was completely floored and inspired to, to write software for, for the phone. At the time the iPhone was announced, there was no App Store. People were not developing en masse for mobile platforms. At this time, many of the people that are developing iOS apps today were actually working on projects for the web or for the Mac. People like Matthew Bischoff, who's only in his 20s, but he's racked up in a very impressive resume. He has his own iOS app development company called Lickability, and currently he also works at Tumblr on their iOS and Mac apps, and before this had worked on the New York Times app as well. He is someone that completely embodies the industry that the App Store has created. I was in high school in 2007. Um, and I was um, taking computer science AB, or, or whatever the, the, more, the harder one is. I think it's computer science AB with my friend Brian Caps, who ended up starting a company with me um, after all this iPhone stuff. And I was also super excited about the iPhone itself. Like, I was like the second person in line at my, Apple st- at my uh, AT&T store. I was, didn't live that close to an Apple store. Um, and so I was, I was really into the Mac stuff by then. I was figuring out how to program, and I was also trying to help run a, a podcast company as well. So I was doing, doing a lot of stuff. It was all mostly web development, um, and there was a mix of like ASP, some design stuff, and then I think a lot of different like Flash websites. Oshin Prendeville makes up one part of a small development company called Supertop. They make two iPhone apps, Unread and Cashdo. Supertop's other half is Padre Kennedy. And for me, I think I had just quit a job uh, working with a company that was based on the Isle of Man, managing the development of an identity verification system, of all things. And I was looking for what the next thing would be. By this time, the iPhone has been in the world for three months, and developers were clamoring to be able to do more with it. They wanted to dig in and experiment, be creative, and find ways to push the iPhone to its limits. There's no way to build official apps right now. There's no app store. There's just web apps and people jailbreaking iPhones. Then, in October 2007, Apple announces on their hot news blog that they would be releasing a software development kit, or SDK, for the iPhone in February of 2008. This would enable developers to create the native applications that they wanted so much. No more web apps, no more jailbreaking. Ever so slightly behind schedule, in March of 2008, Apple hosted an event called the iPhone Roadmap Event on the Apple campus. It was at this event that Apple unveiled the SDK and a whole new way to deliver apps, the App Store. I asked Matt Bischoff what his first thoughts of the SDK were. I was super excited about it. I didn't yet have... um, I I, I was intimidated, though, because I had tried to learn Mac development before, and I I was really hard, and I didn't... There was not yet really the resources to learn, but it was really not until after CS193P came out that I really thought, like, okay, I can watch these videos, and I can learn how to do this, and I'm going to convince Brian, my friend, to do it with me so that I, I am accountable. 
CS193P was a course that Stanford University created that was intended to help people learn how to make iOS apps. This has been updated over the years and is still available on iTunes U. Yeah, two Apple engineers came to Stanford and taught iPhone development to a bunch of Stanford people and they put it up on iTunes U. Uh, it, was, it was amazing, and it still is. If you want to learn iOS development today, it's still one of my, the resources I recommend. At this time, Marco Arment was developing Instapaper whilst working at Tumblr, and the idea of being able to make an app for this read-it-later web service that he had made in his spare time seemed appealing. Very shortly after I got the iPhone, I, I made the very first version of Instapaper because I, you know, you know, I famously told the story a million times. Um, I wanted things to read on the train on the way home from Tumblr, and I, you know, I would find things during the day and I'd save them from like Dig or whatever sites mattered at the time. And uh, this is the old dig before the current dig. And uh, I would save them and, and I would read them on my phone. And, and this was all just a web page with a very narrow layout. And, and it was obvious at the time, you know, this web pages would, as they do now, they'd get flushed out of memory and you'd have to reload them. And it was even worse back then because there was even less memory. So uh, there was 128 megs of memory. So it was way less than we have today. Uh, so I and the trains go underground, lose connection. So I wanted offline reading, and I knew that only an app would be able to do that because again, this is before HTML5 had any offline support. So I I wanted to make an app. You know, I, I never wanted to do it enough to like jailbreak and go through that whole scene. But once I heard rumblings of a, of a real SDK, and then once that event came and, and formally announced a real SDK, um, I was very excited to do that app. As people were preparing to think about what they could do for the iPhone in the run-up to the SDK's unveiling, most people would have naturally assumed they would be having to sell their software themselves. Not many would have considered that Apple would also be the distributor. Before the App Store, there were very few distribution models, or at least in the Apple community anyway. You either sold it yourself for download on your own website, or you packaged up your software on a disk, put it in a box, and hoped that Apple would carry it in the retail stores. So the store itself, to me, was not that much of a big surprise. Um, before joining the Mac de- development community, or the Apple development community, I guess I should say, uh, I had been working in console games. And the idea of sort of like a, a company store and downloadable content was not that surprising. Um the idea that Microsoft or Sony or Nintendo could nix your project or have a yay or nay, that was kind of second nature to me by that point. You know, once they announced the SDK and, and that they would be doing the App Store, um, I really kind of assumed that Apple would be taking that or uh, adopting that kind of model. I asked David Smith, a full-time iOS developer with over 160 apps in the store, what his first opinions were and why it appealed to him. What was appealing to me about the App Store is that it felt... It, you, I kind of just had this feeling that it was going to be, like, the next big thing, which I guess history in some ways has proven out. Um, but it just kind of had that feeling of there was a lot of general pop culture interest in it. There was a lot of um, the kind of people who would, have gonna, who would have had access to it were the kind of people who likely had some disposable income. And at the time, I was looking for something for, for something else to do. Like, not that I was particularly like, crazy unhappy at my job, but it wasn't really captivating me. And so I was looking for something, and the, the App Store just kind of 
coincided well with that. David actually went on to ship iPhone apps before he even actually owned the device himself. Uh, I had some friends who had iPhones, and so I'd, you know, sort of played with their phones a bit. But it, the expense of owning an iPhone at the time was something that just wasn't worthwhile for me. And but, you know, I once I had started shipping apps, eventually I was like, well, I should probably get an iPhone. It just seems a bit silly not to. Um, and then from then, you know, obviously, it's I've owned every every iPhone since, and every iOS device to some degree since then. So that's changed quite dramatically. This episode is brought to you by Fracture, a company that prints photos directly onto glass. Some people would describe Fracture prints as kind of looking like hanging an iPad on your wall, and that is an apt way of describing it. The colors pop on the glass like you wouldn't believe. They're they're really fantastic. I ordered some Fractures a couple of years ago of podcast artwork, um, and I love them. I have one for all of the shows that we've done. I'm going to be ordering some for all of the relay shows that we did recently too. But I did order uh, a Fracture for Stephen, my co-founder, um, of the Relay logo and it looks fantastic. They're such fantastic gifts. I bought them it for his birthday and he just loved it because sometimes when you give someone something like that, you're giving them something that means something to them. Like photos and images, they're so personal and Fracture allows you to put them in a way that they just look beautiful and like nothing you've ever seen before. They're ready to mount right out of the package. They just come on this solid backing and all you have to do is screw it into the wall and you can hang it up. They even throw in a screw as well because they're nice like that. It's really affordable. They have prices starting at $15 for their small size. I really, really recommend Fracture. They're all hand assembled and they're checked for quality by their small team in Gainesville, Florida. If you needed another reason to buy one, aside from the fact that they're supporting us, you can get 15% off with the code INQUISITIVE just go to fracture.me to check it out online so that's code inquisitive it'll get you 15% off these guys make great stuff Steve Jobs unveiled the app store himself during this two hour long iPhone roadmap event if you think about the importance of the app store today would you believe that out of those two hours that Apple set aside for the presentation they only spent five minutes talking about the app store Steve explained the fact that Apple would be keeping 30% of the revenue of each app unless it was free and outlaid what Apple felt developers would be getting from this deal so we think this is pretty cool and uh, the app store is going to be the exclusive way to distribute iPhone applications directly to every iPhone user. Now, developers are going to ask, well, this is great, but what's the deal, right? (laughs) What's the business deal? We think we've got a great business deal for our developers. First of all, the developer picks the price. Pick whatever price you want to sell your app at. When we sell the app through the App Store, the developer gets 70% of the revenues right off the top. We keep 30 to pay for running the App Store. There are no credit card fees for the developer. We take care of all that. There are no hosting fees for us hosting the app. We take care of all that. There's no marketing fees. The developer gets 70% of the revenues and it's paid monthly. This is the best deal going to distribute applications to mobile platforms. Now, we talk about the 70-30 revenue split, but the developer gets to pick the price. And you know what price a lot of developers are going to pick? Free, right? So when a developer wants to distribute their app for free, there is no charge for free apps. 
Also, during this presentation, Steve mentioned that there would be some limitations to what they would allow on the store, which on the face of it seemed pretty obvious and fair. Now, will there be limitations? Of course. There are going to be some apps that we're not going to distribute. Porn, <laughs> malicious apps, apps that invade your privacy. So there will be some apps that we're going to say no to, but again, we have exactly the same interest as the vast majority of our developers, which is to get a ton of apps out there for the iPhone, and we think we've invented an incredibly great way to do it, which is the App Store. In later episodes of the show, we're going to look a little more in depth into how people feel about the 30% cut seven years on, and also take a look at exactly how Apple's approval process for the App Store has changed significantly and quite quickly. Now the iPhone has been out for a year, but it's still very much in its infancy. It doesn't even have copy and paste yet. But now there's this great SDK out for developers, which holds the promise of allowing us to do more with our iPhones. In 2008, Apple's developer conference WWDC began on June 9th, one month before the iPhone OS 2.0 and the App Store were released to the world. This was the first time in history that WWDC had sold out. And it's clear why. Developers have been working on their apps since March, getting ready for the App Store to be released onto the world, and they needed as much information as possible to be ready. The keynote that year included the announcement of a stable version of the iPhone SDK so developers could finalize everything and get ready to put their apps on sale, as well as a bit more information about the App Store and iPhone OS 2.0 itself. In 2008, this is a huge deal for Apple. With the iPhone, they were on the upswing. They were definitely growing, but they were not the Apple that we know today. To have this much developer interest was incredibly exciting. People wanting to develop for a new platform and the fact that it was an Apple platform first was fantastic. WWDC 2008 sold out because people really wanted to be in the App Store. By the time we got to WWDC in 2008, um, they had announced the SDK for app development and developers were working on apps. So the biggest difference I would say between 2007 and 2008 is in 2007, you had Mac developers who were hungry for more information about how they could develop programs for iOS, for the iPhone at the time. In 2008, you had software developers who had the first iPhone SDK and were trying to build apps for and get them in the app store for the iPhone. And that was a big difference that now it was questions in in detail about what can I do instead of it being, boy, I hope we hear something about what's going on. So it, it just it was a completely different gear. And that whole um, that whole period from when the SDK was announced to the day that the App Store launched was uh, a period where if you talk to software developers, they were just incredibly enthusiastic about what was going on. When you put the tools in the hands of programmers, um, that's when they get happy. Because then they can, then they're not wondering anymore. The App Store's release heralded the start of a huge change for Apple and the software market at large. Apple created an entire industry, something that neither they nor anyone else could have predicted. Greg Pierce runs an app development company named Agile Tortoise. This clip from Greg perfectly sums up what the App Store has allowed people to be able to do. I was working full time as an IT manager for a manufacturing and contracting company that I had been with for uh, going on 10 years. Um, and I was in the process at this 
the same time of going independent and working my way away from them. And I, I, I am now full-time doing my apps. Over the course of Inquisitive Behind the App, we're going to explore the app ecosystem, how and why people develop iPhone apps, what the good, the bad, and the ugly of the app store is today, and what it's like the night before you release your app to the world. With the help of some incredibly talented people, we'll explore how we went from free web apps to an industry bigger than Hollywood. Here's a bit of what you can look forward to in later episodes. I fall in love with the names usually, and that's why with Overcast, I ended up paying, I think it was $12,000 to license the trademark. Blimey. Yeah, <laughs> because I couldn't, I, I went through a process of trying to come up with other names, and I just couldn't, like, every other name I came up with was terrible by comparison. I'm probably, I probably have a controversial opinion about this, I think, because I actually want a stronger app review. I want Apple to take more of an interest in the apps that are on the store and actually feel comfortable rejecting more apps than they reject today. I, I can't even remember the numbers for TapTap Revenge when they started. It went into the millions very quickly, which is kind of mind-blowing. Inquisitive is a production of Relay FM. You can find show notes and links for this episode at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash 27. Inquisitive is produced by Stephen Hackett, Adina Niamtu, and me. Marco Savage is our editorial advisor. Huge thanks to everyone who's provided their time and feedback to help get this series off the ground. I couldn't do it without you. The music you've heard in this episode was created and provided by Brave Wave Productions. Support for this episode comes from Squarespace, Fracture, and Cards Against Humanity. You can find out more about this show and all of our shows at Relay FM by visiting us online at relay.fm. I am Mike Hurley. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E, on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening.